Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast. I'm Dave Sharp, Marketing Consultant for Architects at VanityProjects.com. Today, I am honoured to be joined by Kirsten Thompson from Kirsten Thompson Architects in Melbourne. KTA was established in 1994, and now the 45-person practice works across a variety of projects spanning architecture, interiors, landscape, and urban design with a focus on strong, clear design ideas and buildings that forge connections with their surroundings. In this episode, Kirsten and I discussed how her practice got their first public projects, the importance of her time teaching architecture, and how it helped her to develop her abilities as a communicator. We also explored some of the challenges of growth and how Kirsten balances her time working on projects as well as running the business, and how she removes herself as a bottleneck in the design process, as well as her thoughts on the importance of being a generalist, how writing and public speaking has helped her attract like-minded clients, and why it's critical to be an advocate for architecture whenever you get the chance. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Kirsten Thompson from Kirsten Thompson Architects. Kirsten, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure, Dave. Great to finally be here. Third time lucky. Third time lucky. You're out of hotel quarantine, so it should be absolutely great this time, I think. Yes, So, same kind of question as last time to start things off, I guess, a little bit of an overview of the history of the practice, kind of where you sort of started off and then where you and the team Mm. are today. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Uh, Amazing how little you recall of our last conversation. (laughs) It's just evaporated in the time between. So, like a lot of practices, uh, early days started um, with small housing projects and then had an increasing interest in using some of the thinking from that to start to inform and infiltrate, uh, if you like, more civic and public sector projects, which is certainly where the office has shifted to now, especially in the cultural sector and education. But I would say that partly what helped that shift happen is because of always having had a parallel teaching commitment as well and how useful it is to have the clarity of thinking, I think, that uh, teaching and the research with that offers practice and then, if you like, the sort of lovely contingency and messiness of practice back into teaching. So I've always seen them as very interrelated and formative of where the practice is now. Yeah, and so, so was it that connection to the time that you're spending teaching and the clarity of the thinking, so you've got time to think about it because you have mm. to articulate yourself mm. to other people and to students. Is that, is that a big part of that? Right. Okay. Yes, very, very much so that I think it was, it was two things really, that yes, in talking with your students, um, who you learn, you learn as much from them as they do from you, hopefully, um, but certainly having to explain yourself or help someone else perhaps understand the motivations or the possibilities of a project, I think, trains you to articulate things spatially and in terms of architecture and then I think to what I noticed is that in teaching when I started which was in 1990 was when the master's program by practice was becoming um, or was embedding down at RMIT as a pretty innovative way of practice being a form of research and recognising that the work that architects do every day is a form of research. And so it was the beginning of thinking quite carefully about priorities or interests or speculations 
that um, perhaps began for me as a student and which started to play out in projects, then you explored in teaching and then in turn informed the projects and so forth. So it's this kind of mutually defining endeavours. And university can be a very aspirational place when it comes to design thinking, right? Like, like I, I, you know, I always just remember, you know, you'll have uh, little tiny Mm. studios that sort of emerge Mm. in in, in some of these contexts and it might just be one or two people, but they think, okay, our next project is going to be an art museum in Barcelona or something. They're they're always thinking big, right? There's not, Mm. um, was there, was, how did you find, so research and practice uh, yes. kind of allowed that to bridge that gap between what you're doing and teaching and, and practice. All right, okay, because I could see yeah. there being a little bit of a divide there yeah. where on the one side you're doing these new practice mm. smaller projects and then, yeah. Mm. Well, I think that's where I would distinguish RMIT and actually have to credit that as a school for really effectively bridging that gap, which really shouldn't be there, between the mm. speculation that's possible in the university and the speculation that's also possible in practice and I know that in other schools I've taught there has been this I think wrong understanding that it's all fun and fabulously expansive and Mm. um, speculative in school and then you get into practice and there's the banality of the technical and the regulatory and there's no opportunity for big ideas and I think definitely RMIT has always had such a strong link between, you know, really good design practitioners of the city teaching and keeping that speculation happening and alive through practice as well. There isn't that separation. So that gets reinforced back to students who then feel confident to go and do that in their own work. And I think um, I think that's something I would say is very distinctive about, you know, our local our local. Yeah culture of architecture in Melbourne, that um, that very, very close link between industry and schools. It's, it's fantastic, actually. Yeah, that's so interesting. So during that first few years, when you were thinking about the bigger, getting onto that, oh, how, how sort of, how long into the practice did you mm. start actually working on the, the bigger things or the... Mm. Uh, well, interestingly, it's, you know, I'd almost say it was less less a concern about scale of course mm, you're always mm. thinking oh yes you start with tiny things and you think oh it would be good for a multitude of reasons for the possibility to get larger projects but I think more importantly was the types of programs to work on and so you know our very early public sector projects were things like tiny police stations so they're pretty modest mm. they're no different in fact sometimes they had a smaller budget than a high-end house so it wasn't so much a question of scale or money it was more um program and working in a in the public realm so and the capacity to to bring some generosity and so forth to that so that was that was the beginning um and and then as it's um, continued, I think we could see how a lot of the sorts of interests we had as a practice could could move into a different kind of program as well. And it's always intrigued me how some of the interests, say, in our early houses, for example, the Conawara House, which thought about at an expanded landscape and ecological scale, that's been a project that's become formative and underpinned a lot of our larger projects. So, for instance, the Riversdale project for the Arthur Boyd Gallery and Education Centre in, in New South Wales. 
in many ways is building on something of mm. the early thoughts from that and then, of course, adding to and expanding those thinking. So there's a, yeah. and similarly, the Jewish Holocaust Centre, which is currently under construction, there's ideas in that and its material detailing and approach, which we had tested, if you like, in a in a house. So yeah. there's... Is I don't see it very useful to split between scales sometimes. Um, it's more the clarity of intent and purpose of a project, which I think can cross type and scale. That's, yeah. Interesting. In, in, in a typical sort of year back then in those earlier mm. days of the practice, were you working on more projects at a time than you are now as a practice or is it sort of like, or is it the other no, way? Is it way mean. more practices now, way more projects now? Okay. Uh, it does We've probably always been on quite a lot at one time. And I must say, you know, there are practices I hear of and they maybe one, you know, fairly famous solo architect working by themselves one thing at a time. And as much as I admire it, I just, I frankly couldn't do it myself. I am (laughs) someone who likes to jump around in between many different things. Sometimes it's hard work um, and exhausting, but I think there is, something about as long as you can find the focus for each of those different projects I do think that leaping between them helps um, clarify what each of them is attempting to do and you can get a bit of useful cross-pollination of thinking too so um, yes no so lots of projects because it it sounds like that experimentation and those connections between the different programs and the the, is something that you only get when you do take on a lot of you know do a lot of different types of things yeah Um, exactly you touched on earlier about this idea of bringing more generosity to the public realm so Mm. when you were starting to do that with briefs like the police station and so on Mm. um how how did as emerging as a practice how when, when you sort of brought your I mm. imagine that you're possibly competing with some other architects for mm. those types of projects, but mm. um, how was your approach kind of looked upon in those early mm. uh, in those early days? Like, was there mm. did you, you get pushed back by the, by yeah. the client when they were selecting yeah, you sure. as an architect? Um, you're obviously coming with kind of a different approach, and mm. did were they sort mm. of a little bit sort of shocked by that? Or <laughs> Look, I, th- I think to be to be frank. Uh, those kinds of projects, if if you fulfil basic credentials of capability and service provision, um, and more often than not, there may be someone in the client group who is prepared to back you who hasn't done exactly that type of program before. And I would say in every project type, there's always been a really important client who has said, we will give you a go even though you haven't done this type. And I cannot thank those people enough, actually, because we all know how hard it is as emerging practices to make that leap. And, you know, if we if the world simply follows box ticking of capability and have you done 10 of these types before, mm. we would never, ever, no one would ever have a chance to break their, um, to break their habit of what they've already done. So... First of all, to recognise people like that, um, and there was someone, uh, Linda Noak, in the police, uh, Victoria Police, who was one of those people. So that's the first thing. Wow. I think, um, secondly, as long as we've found, and this is a big difference with, I would say, a lot of our residential work, we have found with public sector and commercial work that 
there is a clear understanding that you are the experts and as long as you meet the organisation's need for operations, functionality, durability, regulatory stuff, frank, and budget and time, that's it. Easier so said than done. <laughs> it, well, that's right. And there's certainly no underplaying how important yeah. all of those things are. In mm. fact, that's just the presumed baseline of yeah. service, I would say, to do yeah. those things. Um, but beyond that, I think the questions of language, for instance, you know, what does it look like? These are things that we find more often than not is their conversations we might have, but I think the client generally is comfortable. If all those other things are working, then over to you. You're, you're the expert. You know how to work with context or whatever it might be that is understood as an aspiration. But I would say to, and maybe Marysville Police Station is an example of this, <clears throat> where um, we did bring to the project an extended um, opportunity for a modest police station to help define the new park and public realm. So we could have just stuck with simply thinking about it as a police station on that block yep. of land and that was it and that fronted the main street and instead we thought, well, yes, it can do that, but it can also front the park as well and start to become a really formative element within a bigger composition of the public realm and parkland. So that's where I sometimes talk about us piggybacking some extra over opportunity onto a, a straightforward brief. And I think right. that's, that's part and, of it. Because yeah. you've, you've mentioned that there's that person there that wants to back somebody who gives somebody a chance, right? And yeah. For that, for the, for you to kind of connect with that person, and mm. uh, you have to that that idea of putting going bigger or going further mm. than what the brief is really asking for is that kind of a crucial mm. element of a light bulb going off for that person mm. in terms of Look, I think I found I, somebody to back here. Yeah, I think it could be, but I will say that at the time of selection or appointment for those projects, especially the first one, they don't know you're going to do that. So that's yeah. really <laughs> where. In subsequent work, and they were they have been a repeat client, um, yes, then they become familiar with the fact that you'll probably deliver more than yeah. the brief necessitates. Um, but it's, and, and some clients, yes, I think, recognise that as an extra, which they want to, they want to back. But for that first look of faith, it's kind of a bonus that came with the project. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that is quite tricky. How, how, how should a firm do that? How should a practice do that mm. or get through those initial things where you are trying to do a kind mm. of project that you haven't done before and hopefully mm. there is somebody there who, who yeah. will be uh, open-minded to, to trying yeah. somebody who doesn't have, who hasn't done 25 of them mm. in the portfolio. Mm. But um, I kind of get that question all the time and I never really have a good answer for it because mm. I haven't, it is, I haven't done really it. But, how, but how, do you, how do you do it? Is it, is it yeah. luck just kind of constantly trying and persistence yeah. and, and a few kind yes. of get through the net? Is that the idea? Oh, no. I think it's it's a bit of that. I think occasionally, yes, that's part of it. And as I say, getting lucky sometimes with the person making a decision who's just prepared to think a bit laterally. Mm. But I think the other thing that can be done, which we've done and I can imagine other practices might find useful, is what you have already done. From that, you've gleaned all sorts of insights, which can be appropriate or applicable to another project. So, in fact, um, the programmatic detail is sometimes less critical to have expertise in than a way of thinking about a problem that could be applicable to 
any number of programs. So mm. I definitely think that's where you, you frame what you have done as valuable knowledge or thinking to bring to the project that you're pitching for. So in that way, I think you can try and overcome that perennial problem of not experience in that type. Yeah. Yeah. And then articulating that knowledge to others <clears throat> and that expertise. I mean, that <clears throat> that's kind of university. That's like bread and butter, right? Like you write about it, exhibitions, <clears throat> books like you, there's that whole sort of yes. production of how yes. you actually communicate your ideas to other people Absolutely. that doesn't always happen in just private practice normally. It's no. just you put up on the website, then you kind of move on to the next. <laughs> I think that's right. And I think that's where it goes back to things like teaching being the beginning of a, a, a focus or an understanding of how important it is to be able to talk about ideas and communicate. Well, actually not just talk about, but yes, communicate, whether it's graphically or through the written word or through your built form uh, and your drawings, that first of all, you have clear intention that can be communicated. And that's the thing. You can't communicate something you're not clear about. So that's, that's yeah. probably the thing we spend the most time on. And if, you know, if I try to explain what's my job here every day, it is trying to find that clarity of purpose and clarity of intent that drives every project forward. And that helps not just us internally as a design team, because if, if I'm clear about what I think is important or a priority or a um, a key move or something and desired impact, it's easier for others in the team to to progress that. And similarly, it's the same for our clients and our consultants, that you can explain why you're doing what you're doing, why it's important, and and therefore that, that I think helps decision-making and keeping projects on track. That's not to say that you might not change or revise that intention as you get into a project uh, because as we know it's a pretty dynamic fluid situation making buildings a lot of the time but I that's the thing I sort of most notice is some practices have that and others don't and you there's so much change and um tensions in projects that without that things can really easily go off the rails and you can be fighting for the wrong things because you, there's not a bigger uh, broader intent that's holding things together so yeah mm. interesting so teaching the whole time um obviously takes a portion of your work week where you're kind of <laughs> stepping away from your practice um how like in a typical kind of work week for you or a month, I mean, how mm. much of your time are you sort of out of the practice versus in mm. the practice? Well, that's a good question, Dave, at the moment because currently I'm not teaching. Um, okay, good. <laughs> and so, and I, I will say over the last two years, I have not been teaching other than doing you know, occasional crits, for instance, for colleagues. Yep. So I still do a fair bit of that and examining, things like that. But in terms of leading a studio, it has been a while. And that has been probably due to the fact that uh, having, I think, having the projects that we've had over the last three or four years and the opportunity that they've provided, it was a call to try and um, focus on those because hmm. you never know 
when you'll get another opportunity like that and so to give them yep. the best chance of that focused um, thinking. But interestingly too, that it's there is a lot of foundational thinking that's happened through the earlier teaching that informs those projects So, and may shift how I might think about teaching when I do go back to it. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And, for instance, next year, I think the latter part of next year would be a great time to, to pick it up again. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in how uh, in the past then, possibly mm. not, not recently, but how it sort of um, almost forced you to, well, there's this, there's a lot of business owners that obviously struggle mm. with this idea of how do I how do I delegate mm. and share my workload yeah. with other people and it's this kind yes. of growing pain going from yes. one to three to five to whatever many people and mm. I, I read this idea of well, you should make sure you book a four week holiday <laughs> once a year that's going to force you <laughs> that's going to force right. you to be prepared enough to not be in the office for four weeks um, yeah. and then everyone has to kind of manage without you Learn. and that's yeah. this sort of threshold for a lot of people but I was yeah. thinking about you teaching being out of the office or, or not even just teaching, but you're mm. a person, you're, you're involved in a lot of different things. And mm. I, I can tell like, you know, you, you write articles, you've worked working on your monograph, you've done so many different, do so many different things mm. all the time. Um, but mm. how do you sort of look at that, uh, that, mm. that ability to not, not be, mm. you know, a hundred hour work week stuck in the office. Yeah, kind sure. of thing. <laughs> That's a really good question. Some, some weeks are better than other. I can some weeks are better. Right. Of course, <laughs> of course. Well, maybe it's um, still a hundred hours, but not a no, hundred no, no, hours no. of just, you know, yeah. 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 No, no, no. I would, I would say that over the years I have, um, I am more efficient with my time and did learn quite well earlier on that uh, working all the time is not very good work and apart from taking a toll uh, on, on your life really. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I do, um, I do, I am fairly strict with my working hours, starting early, finishing not too late every day, um, trying to keep weekends clear, things like that because, I find I'm just so much better thinking and doing my job when I have had that separation from it. So that's the first thing I would say. But the other thing is maybe it's just as you have more experience, you have more understanding of what it takes to um, to do the work. And so even in terms of design, you know, we're sort of constantly up against awful deadlines and... I think on the one hand, you can, you know, some people say, to, I don't know how you do it. How can you force yourself to have a good idea? And I think, well, uh, for a start, there's no point speculating on having time you don't have. It just doesn't help. You, you have the time you have and within that, how are you going to best use it? And perhaps, again, from teaching and things and experience, you, you have ways into a problem. And so... I think to um, this, this sort of thinking around design through doing is a really important thing to learn and it, it sort of took me a while. It's something you say to students a lot and, it's, you know, don't wait until you think you've got the idea before you start drawing. It's almost whatever the starting point might be, however stupid it seems or insignificant or uninteresting, Sometimes just to start with anything is the way to where their idea and possibility might lie. So I think 
getting away from being precious with a design starting point is quite important um, or certainly a way into it. And so that was one part. Um, went a bit off topic there. But no, no. I think, um, I think the other part of it too, and going back to the question of how do I manage to do many different things and um, and pass on or enable others to progress mm. projects, well, certainly that's the big question of how you grow and finding ways to enable others to also be able to, to progress the thinking on a project. And I think that goes back to what I said before about clarity of purpose and intentions mm. with a project, that um, if we make a point at the beginning of a project, sort of a project plan, if you like, where we start first identifying and recording what are the key possibilities, what are the key pressures, what are the key opportunities, etc., of a project as a starting point, which helps drive some of the early research that everybody can contribute to. And then once the design is starting making a start and some early principles or intentions are coming from that early design work. It's to record those, to diagram those, and to, again, use those as a way to communicate with the rest of the team what are the drivers on this project. So each time, no matter where someone is in a team, um, they have something to guide their thinking and contribution to the project. So in that way, you're helping to channel through those that, that plan, if you like, the, the thinking that everybody brings to a project at whatever stage to still get to where we need to get to. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the ways you can distribute, if you like, or disperse um, the design thinking across a number of people so it's not just one person who, if they don't do that thinking, it all falls apart and people are sitting around waiting to be told what to do. Now, look, inevitably that sometimes happens and there is a, a roadblock somewhere. I hate that word, sorry, politicians use it all the time, but, <laughs> excuse me, a blockage somewhere. And, and, and so I think we have things like design reviews and other mechanisms in the office to help things move along while you're waiting. But also, you know, um, leaders of a team who will say to me, Kirsten, really, you've got to do something on this today because it's holding us up, if that does happen. And that's probably where you need people, you need a relationship between team members where people can feel comfortable to say, you know, you need to do X or Y and also that it's not made up of yes people as well who just wait for the word from above and meanwhile yeah. don't feel like they can offer thoughts to um, and I think that's yeah. where a sort of open openness in a team is really important yeah so everyone can chip in yeah that must be a wonderful feeling when you step away from the office and kind of come back and see all the stuff that's happened <laughs> all yeah, the amazing right. things that everyone's been doing while you've been you know uh, attending to some other issues. It just must yeah, be no, you know, great to see well, all the ideas emerging and, yeah. Well, it's just um, I think I think that's where, it's, you know, it's always quite interesting to me to speculate on what the role of uh, someone like myself is within a practice where you, you've been there from the beginning. You are the, the point of continuity across all of the manifestations of the practice um, and 
how, and in many ways, that's what you might say accounts for the culture of the practice. On the other hand, you want to be able to, um, if you like, as I said earlier, disperse that too or just empower others to be able to play that out as well. And so sometimes it may mean that, yes, generating sketches and things from me might be the beginning of something, but then it can also be the thing that others go and explore and come up with things that might not I might not have anticipated or thought of. So it's definitely where it's it's a bigger effort than one hand, that's for sure. Yeah. Mm. What sort of proportion of your time is design project focused versus mm company business mm. uh meeting potential clients um mm. you know dealing with <laughs> payroll and hr and yeah, yeah. you know running your instagram account or whatever else you're yes, doing guess. Sure. Like, um yeah. it must with a company I, I guess we didn't even really touch on this but i mean mm. I, I think i managed to count like 29 people on your website at the moment so um, i think there's about 45 of us at the moment so <laughs> okay so you haven't updated the website in a while okay <laughs> so you've got four, another four, thing okay. to do. Oh, so it's like 40 okay so 40 something yeah. people so running a company yeah. of that size is yeah um yeah, and I imagine that some of your responsibilities are also dispersed mm. as well. Like you're not the one mm. that's, you know, in QuickBooks on the weekend, like reconciling no, the, um, <laughs> the invoices. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so how do you how do you sort of balance between the two yeah. in your in your role? Yeah. Um, yeah, Look, I think as that's one. It's interesting what happens with growth. On the one hand, when we're about sort of ten or twelve, um, I. that seemed quite big to me and um, before it went really big and it still felt like a family almost and we knew everyone and very sort of closely and it seemed ideal and then you realise there's this sort of awkward point where you're neither a small nor a large practice and so in some ways it's financially really tricky too because um, you can't quite afford to have specialist roles and so there's a fair bit of juggling um, to to manage that, and and then there's a point where you can get large enough to be able to have that support layer of someone who can focus on comms or graphics yep. or uh, you know office management and so forth. So yep. that's what we have been wrestling with the last few years. And one advantage I think has been that with that growth. I've clearly had to decide, well, you can't do everything and I don't want to do everything and I certainly don't have the capabilities to do everything very well. So with growth, it meant clarifying what's my role compared to what someone else could do and is better at doing and is happy to do. So we have more clarity around our structure and the roles within that. And in that regard, it's a long way of answering your question, but um, in terms of day-to-day operations, I have very little to do with that. And my focus is on, excuse me, um, setting, for instance, at the front end, thinking about a pitch, uh, thinking about a way of looking at a a problem or a project that we might be pitching for and then and from that some of the early design thinking that might manifest if we are successful. Mm. So it's definitely focused around the design end and design thinking on projects and that 
tends to be both through drawings but also through writings as well. I find writing quite a useful way to clarify what's happening in the drawings and they I find that I sort of try and switch between writing and drawing to help clarify a project. Um, and then parallel to that, the design focus in here, design leadership, is around, um, if you like, the thought, I guess thought leadership is another way of putting it, which is where the writing, the talks, um, those other things come in to play. And strangely, even something strangely like Instagram, which we've had discussions in here, you know, whether that should be run by a comms person or not. And so far I have tended to do that because it started as another way to talk about what drives us in terms of the thinking of the practice. So, and I think I still um, like it, its purpose being that um, because, you know, it's interesting I find quite a lot of other practices it, it tends to be much more about almost a sales focus and I think we've deliberately done that less mm. explicitly. So different ways of using it, but so far that's how we've tended to, to use it. So it's an interesting could I, one. Could I just probe a little bit more into that because it's very interesting. Sure. So um, so you pointed out that other practices have tend to use what Instagram, social media and things, is their, their view mm. of it is it's more of mm. a sales channel for them. Um, and you're looking yes. at it as more in a kind of pure communication, clarifying mm. exactly. sort of. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. What, what is your, um, what is the ethos of the practice? What are the interests mm. that drive it? So, so far it's been more about um, representing those things and, um similarly, you know, one thing I notice is I think awards time is a really interesting time when you really see that come to bear where Instagram feeds just get clogged up with awards announcements. Now, yep. there's nothing wrong with that and it's, oh, it's a perfect medium for that. But I think I'd like to think it, it serves us another purpose too that um, it is about a forum for ideas and so I think that's where we'd prefer to use it. And I also find it interesting how I notice that not a lot of architects are on Twitter and, um, mm. and the way, uh, partly because it's, I think, because it's a less visual medium, I also think because as a profession I don't think we do enough um, commentary around yep. what's happening in the world and there's this tension between being a practitioner and being a commentator that not many people want to try and strike that balance or um, run that line because you can hold yourself up to a level of um, quality, if you like, that you call out in others that you therefore need to mm. keep yourself. So it's it's fraught. Yeah. But I know personally I th have used Instagram more about the practice and the work that we do, um, whereas Twitter I use simply as a um, more for commentary about and other people's works or thinkings, if that makes sense. So they, yeah. they serve very different purposes. Um, yeah. And I think people like, I think it's really interesting, someone like Philip Thellis, for instance, who is very vocal and I really admire his um, willingness to 
to call things out, to hold us to account. There's not very much of that, so as opposed no. to another press release. And I think that's really valuable, and I do think we need more of that, but it's, yeah. And so. I think part of the reason there isn't more of it, I know it's a weird mm. reason, but you, mm. you pointed out exactly not that many people are on Twitter <laughs> like no. in the architecture industry. When Twitter, mm. I think, you know, mm. it, it's like it, your phone is burning a burning a hole mm. in your pocket going, please mm. tweet some commentary. Like it's, it's begging for it. Um, yeah. Whereas on Instagram, yeah. it, it's sort of there's everyone has a much gentler approach to yes. uh, the, the, the mood true. and the atmosphere it tends to yeah. be a little bit more um, yeah. bubble wrapped, I think. Yeah. Um, but I but it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe maybe no. this could be, maybe yeah. everyone could start firing some shots off on, yeah. <laughs> on Instagram. I mean, it's not even, you know, and it's not to be brutal. I'm not suggesting that. But I do think that uh, there are bigger conversations we could be having which go beyond our own work or practice. And so, you know, issues of the day, which I think that other medium is also really useful for. And what I notice is that, while a lot of people might have a Twitter account, they only use it where they do that link to their Instagram post. So mm. we just won an award for blah, go to Instagram yep. and look at it. And I think, mm, I sort of a myth, uh, missed opportunity perhaps. But, um, you know, I think similarly in the Institute of Architects, I have noticed that the New South Wales um, presidents have tended to use it more for commentary than I've noticed in Victoria, for instance. So there's little things like this. Little but things like that. Look, yeah. I think the other biggest problem we've got at the moment is just litigiousness and the complexity now of finding a, a justifiable line between commentary that needs to happen for us to maintain a rigour about what we do and um, and how difficult it is to make what can be seen as a criticism without being sued for it, frankly. Yeah. It's, it's become increasingly difficult so that a lot of writing tends to be uh, virtually a, uh, what's the word, a, a press release from the practice. It's yeah. not. So that's that's a shame. <laughs> that is a shame. And I, I, I didn't even realise <laughs> there was that much of that happening until recently mm. and Arctic mm. started um threatening to sue each other and yeah, things like this. That's right. And and it's like, wow, yeah. okay. So that's actually a yeah. real thing that happens yeah. once you mm. once you start taking a little bit that's more right. of uh, mm. put a bit more no filter in your opinions or, or or your stance. Whereas I think which is something that you do really well and and on Twitter, it's like you're not really speaking on the company's behalf. You're speaking mm. yourself as an individual, it feels yes. a lot more. Um, yes. Maybe that's a, a bit of a, a better place for you to take that kind of more personal mm. um, view, and maybe take a little bit more risk mm. there with with that. But mm. um, but that's but that's very very interesting. I'm mm. I'm thinking a little bit about this. Is all kind of elements of what sort of distinguishes Kirsten Thompson Architects from other mm. medium large, I would say large large studios mm. um, that that you guys are very opi like opinionated and. Um, uh, communicate um, your work mm. and the ethos and, and those sorts mm. of things. Like, I guess I'm interested in getting your kind of opinions on when you're a small practice, it's very, it's very challenging to differentiate yourself because there's so many small practices. Mm. That problem isn't really as big of a problem once you get a bit bigger. But then again, mm. um, 
you're you're working on a broad range of projects that you're definitely mm. not like a specialist in any way. So mm. how no. how do you sort of think about really like distinguishing yourself from mm. the client's point of view when mm. there are many great, you know, the the yeah. very, very great medium and large size practices that yes. you're all kind of interested in the same projects as? Yes. Uh, it's a really good question. And I'd love to think I have a really clear response to you that. You don't have a, there is no secret sauce? No, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, there's, and it is something we're working through at the moment, actually, but um, because there's certainly tendencies we have that I think are a little different to some of our peers. Um, and and I, it's something you notice when people, you know, if you ever, if you're ever on the other side of the fence where you're selecting from a range of pitches from architects, it is it's slightly frustrating actually how we do all sound very similar. And looking at people's websites, we're all saying we're dynamic and mm. driven by ESD, and you know, yep. it's it's all that stuff. So yep. I think. Um, I think some of, yeah, and there's certainly interests that we share with some other practices, for instance, you know, a focus on what architecture does, you know, the things it enables, not just what it looks like, for instance. So mm. I can think of other practices that would say similar things um, or uh, be driven by similar motives. Um some people have said that we're sort of less, if you like, object-driven, and I, I think that's probably true that an interest for a long time has been about what I sometimes describe as territorial consequence, that you use you use the built form not as an isolated thing in and of itself but as a means by which you set up relationships to an extended site, relationships between people and the situation so that interest in relationships rather than things is central to the practice. Um, but they're things that are quite hard to describe to a, a client, for instance. It's something architects might understand. Yeah. Um, I think increasingly I think and I hope that our work is understood as having, having clarity in its thinking so that it can be both um, it can be opposite things, and by that I mean that it can be both gentle and sensitive and it also can be clear and strong, and that's something I really like the possibility of. And maybe that goes back to my early 80s education, which was all about, um, you know, finding the things between the opposites and resisting oppositional thinking that if something's strong, then it can't be weak, or if something's black, it can't be white, etc. So... I think things like, for instance, our Broadmeadows Town Hall is an example of that, where on the one hand it's quite a sensitive uh, retention and in part conservation and care for the existing fabric, so it has a sensitivity to what was there and a, and a sort of respect and love of history and association. On the other hand, the big move on the northern facade of the big circle and the cut is a big dramatic change in and um and that's what i mean that you can have both really strong powerful moves but you can also show great sensitivity and care so similarly i'd, I'd say and i hope that the bundan on project is understood like that as well where it's on the one hand um 
we think is a fairly careful appreciation for the heritage of buildings and the landscape there already. And on the other hand, it's it's quite a big, bold move to put this almost a piece of infrastructure is how we've imagined the bridge element on that. So, so I think that's perhaps something that distinguishes us. Um, and I, th- I certainly think, I mean, a lot of people talk about this cross disciplines or certainly between interior landscape and infrastructure. That's been an ongoing interest and I definitely think that does play out in our projects. But um, the other thing I would say is how you can, and it goes to this question of strength or clarity, something I've thought a fair bit about and tried to write about in a, or think about in a talk a few years ago around ethics actually, ethics in architecture, but which is where I talked through this idea of accommodate, to accommodate something, not as a negative, you know, if you're accommodating, I think there has been for a long time this idea that for high design, if you like, to happen in architecture, then a certain bullishness of personality is needed for that and a certain way of bossing the client around. And I think um, that's a kind of, I would say, an outdated model for the architect and um, and we have been interested in finding a way in which you can remain very alive at listening to what a client's response is, even if it's not things you want to hear or difficult to hear or challenging, how you, instead of resisting, you find a way to take on board the thing that lies at the at the nub of that um, commentary or what might be seen as resistance and to work productively with that. So in that sense, I see um, the way in which we accommodate the tensions on a project in a way that also still has intent is really important. And so it's to bring together this idea or counteract this idea that architects don't listen and the only way great, dramatic, phenomenal buildings happen is by blocking out the noise of many voices um, and saying that actually you can have you can be highly responsive and you can still find an idea that can synthesise those tensions and maintain a clarity and integrity of architectural outcomes. So, uh, yeah, it's it's perhaps um, I sometimes I think actually Leon in the book had a very mm. nice way of describing it of how from a conversation we had one day when I was talking about this and he said it's as if these sort of midges or these little elements, considerations on a project fly around for a while and then they slowly start to go in a certain direction. And it was a nice way of describing how there's a whole lot of loose ends and possibilities and perhaps in conflict and rather than... um, trying to force them in one way, you you let things sort of settle for a bit. I find that on lots of projects that even with benefit of time, you think it's not worth having that fight now because I suspect that issue will probably disappear anyway. And so with a bit of time and um, and progress in a project, you've, you start to become clearer of what the real issues are to solve and there's a whole lot of red herrings early on. So 
which is one reason why sometimes fixing on one response very quickly might not be right and you might right. have to change. Yeah, it might is be, something? Yeah, yeah no, please continue. Um, well, I think sometimes what you thought was the thing that was important and to focus the idea around actually might not be what you thought it was or is important and it might be something else that comes to bear that is more what the idea should be structured around. It's like finding the right idea for the problem or the multitude of problems and um, and recognising recognizing that. So keeping it a bit fluid for a while and then you can get great clarity. Mm. So, yeah. Whereas I and think so accommodate sometimes means, oh, right, you just, it's the camel thing, designed by committee, and it's just a mess. Everybody's happy, no one's particularly happy. And it's, so it's, it's finding another way of thinking about. Is that something that you would kind of communicate early on in a client relationship? Would you show them your, your, your cards and say, this is how we resolve conflict or how we view mm. the tension between you mm. as the client and us as the mm. architect or or do we just kind of keep it up our sleeve for once things mm. start being asked for and it's how we internally kind yeah. of handle yeah. these issues? A little bit because I think it's, I mean, I'm sure there is a way that we intimate it in our capability statements and things. But, <laughs> and I, again, I'm sure a lot of every architect says, yes, we listen and we'll work with you and we'll collaborate and all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's nothing new in Unlike any Unlike other that. architects, we listen to our clients like yeah. every single architect says. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. So on the one hand, I think it sounds like a really stupid thing to be emphasising. On, on the other hand, um, I think one of the, you know, probably for me a successful project is when at the end of it, because this is something that um, I, it is to do with the trust you earn with a client and you can only earn that trust by delivering on that trust. So it's at the end of the project you'll hopefully have your best trust credit, if you like, than at the beginning because you have to earn it. And mm. so if at the end of a project the client feels well listened to, and feels that it speaks of what they wanted it to speak of, it does what it needed to do and ticks their, um, you know, ticks their uh, aspirations. And if we also feel that it has a level of integrity as a piece of architecture in addition to doing all those other things and somehow contributed something above and beyond just doing a job, then that for me is a really great outcome. And then... If those clients, and, and I will say this is something we've had um, spoken to us quite a lot from clients, they do feel they were listened to and um, they could see us shift our thinking sometimes if, if it became clear that that's what the project needed for it to be better and more appropriate, but to do that in a way that didn't lose this other value as well. So, yeah, yeah it's um, I don't know if I'm explaining that terribly. No, well, you are. You, you earlier you touched on this idea that your first project with a client was maybe um, you didn't quite have that. You weren't mm. as at they didn't have as trust as much trust in mm. you perhaps, or you weren't mm. didn't have as much creative latitude. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then on that second, third, fourth project, That's is right. that is that repeat uh, when mm. it comes to the public work and the commercial work? Have you mm. found that 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 clients are you do get that mm. repeat business mm. so to speak of mm. of new opportunities for clients with projects with those clients over time 
Um, yes, we have had that in both housing work and other sectors. And But it also, if a project's a one-off where it's, for obvious reasons, the client's never going to build another gallery like X or Y, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. they will pass on to other clients as a reference or something that, you know, mm. we found KTA to work like blah and that's... Yep. Um, that's passing on that reason to trust, if you like. Um, yep. A housing project we did a very long time ago, it was probably late 90s, uh, it was a classic case where the clients had worked, it was a housing project, um, warehouse conversion, and the clients had worked with other architects before and had quite a hard experience and just thought she in particular lived in fear of architects and um, was very nervous about engaging with us for that reason and was very nervous through the whole process, um, really anxious uh, because there are times in a project, remember we used to just do endless models for her and making them bigger and bigger and different types of drawings to try and allay her fears about some of the design aspects to the point where I remember saying to her almost in exasperation, you know, apart from building it, I don't know how else to convince you or help you see why this, I think, will probably work for you. Yeah. And she'd got another architect to come and look at the building mid-construction oh. and again reassure <laughs> her it was just terrible. Anyway, in the end, I could not have happier, more um complimentary mm. uh, appreciative clients and to this day they've remained very close friends and we've since worked with them on other projects and she will say to me oh my goodness Kirsten I was a nightmare I can't believe <laughs> you know what I used to put you through and it's something we joke about now but the point is it there are so many moments in a project where there is a leap of faith that needs to be taken and there is only so much that all the different forms of architectural communication have apart from building it. So you can see for a client with the time, the money, all of that stuff they're investing, it is nerve-wracking. So mm. it's, it's a reminder for us to remember the anxiety that they have every reason to feel because it's, you know, it's enormous resources and so on. Yeah. And how you help them to trust or and entail that trust that's that's a very big responsibility of what we do and you know some days the pressure of um giving them a reason to trust you that is a huge part of our job actually and so yeah yeah responsibility of making buildings interesting um going back to a kind of a previous question i was talking about kind of distinguishing from other practices and kind of yeah clarifying what that point of difference is um yeah. in your response to it i can tell that you're and you actually mentioned that we're kind of currently working on that yes, <laughs> which right. i think a lot of people will find kind of you know funny because there's a lot of sort of two-year-old one person practices that are, say the same thing they're like we're currently working on that yeah. and then they hear that you're doing it as well at the point that you've reached mm. with your practice too so mm. clearly it's not a process that you know you locked in in mm. 1997 and then you've no. just you know it's been completely clear and crystal clear ever since it doesn't really work that way does it mm. no i mean there's, there's certainly drivers that have always been there um and and if i was just to try and summarize a bit of what we're talking about there's things like um 
trying to, you know, have, having an ethic that mm. um, that underpins every project. And I think an ethic plays out in private as much as public. And um, and by that I mean uh, we often talk about this idea of mutual benefit that, and that's probably possibly where some of that thinking started when we worked on, for instance, Napier Street Housing all those years ago. That's sort of over 20 years old now, that project. But was the beginning of thinking, well, how can a private development somehow be positive to its neighbourhood or do something to reinforce the qualities of that place that people like living in that neighbourhood? Uh, and that's and then more recently with Balfi Park, which is a housing project currently under construction, um, it's not just, you know, on the one hand you're keeping the developer happy, you're keeping the future residents of that project happy in high-quality dwellings, but there was also a chance to do something really good for the park that it was opposite and to put in a laneway that was good for the whole neighbourhood. So this is what I think is a, is a big driver for us and it goes back maybe to that point about piggybacking, adding something more um, to a project to just deliver a bit more civic ambition even in things that seem so expressly private. In fact, I think that's, um, I think that is something that we can wrestle with. I think other things is how our professional authority is experienced by our clients because I, I am a believer in disciplinary expertise and that we do have very strong knowledge um, and we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't, lose our faith in that if you like mm. and in fact you could say that in some of the changes over the last 20 or 30 years of architects losing their authority is is because perhaps we have been a bit tentative about that authority and we do mm. need to claim it but if you claim it you have to be responsible and deliver on it too so uh so i think how we how we exercise authority but in a way that is also um open to others and um, and listens. I think they're some of the things we have always tried to do while maintaining a high quality of um, design output. I mean, I think they go together. They're not exclusive. So, mm. yeah. Um, and being non-specialist, I would say that's been something from the beginning, always an interest to... Uh, to have a go at different types of projects so, and not specialise. And actually the opportunity that comes of not being a specialist for the kind of first principles we thinking things. talk Ooh. about this on every episode <laughs> because oh, really? every, every market, pretty much, because every marketing and business person, um, you know, um, bangs on about specialising <laughs> and niching and stuff all day and then... Hmm. Um, uh, all of our favourite architects don't do it. Right. <laughs> so, so, so there's always this kind yeah. of this interesting tension, right? Um, yeah. So what are some, what are some, oh, I guess it's hard to boil it down to this, but if you're not going to mm. specialise, right, if you are going, if you're not mm. going to kind of mm. take that approach, um, you, you are going to be very, very generalist and you know even from day one that's that's what you're going to be and you're going to stick to it and be consistent about that the whole time. Um, 
how do you focus? I think that's always mm. like the, yeah. the kind of the question. Um, cause you, you're only one, you might be only one person or only one company mm. and, and mm. you only have so much time and so many resources mm. to get your message yes. out there, to get, to get all that stuff out there. How do you avoid becoming spread too thin and sort of losing yeah. all meaning? And I guess that's, yeah. I guess that's everything you've been speaking about, right? But do you have yeah. any sort of additional thoughts on it? Yeah. Let's put it that way. No, look, it's a really good question. And, and that's the sort of joke in here too, probably, because on the one hand, we say how much we love well we we enjoy the thinking that we can bring to a project that could be any kind of project that can work across type and scale for instance Mm. so yes on the one hand there's that love and interest on the other hand um after a while we're likely to do the same type a fair few times and certainly we're finding that with our schools work and similarly with our multi-residential work that um, and in that regard you're absolutely crazy not to learn from what's gone before Mm. and it's how you build on the lessons from your past work and also stay fresh as well so you don't default to type or default to your kind of hackneyed um, responses so that's I think you can do both, and I think that's where um, I think that's where the research part of practice is really important. That it's it, practice is always a form of research, I think, or it can be, and it's where you both like. I know when we start projects, we if it was say another multi-residential project, we would start by looking at precedents of other people's work that we think could be relevant to the particular project and we also start looking at our own work and thinking oh that's a bit like when we tried that on that Um, we could expand that idea or uh, actually no it's not so relevant this one more so so certainly a reflection back at what you've done before the lessons you can learn from that how you could do something better or so on is is definitely an essential part of being a reflective practitioner as people might sometimes call it and that is where you can build on and focus what you've done so you're not reinventing the wheel every time. I definitely think that as well. Um, and I'm sure in here they'd love, you know, I wish I could say you have a, a standard set of details or something you've done before and you can just roll out again. I don't know. It just never seems that simple. It's very funny. <laughs> By the time you've got a bit of regulatory change or the parameters of that project over another or template or whatever, it's um it just seems really hard to be able to just straight out repeat stuff so you know one day i i I always have this hunch that even practices that are very sort of not general well yeah generalized okay doing doing like a broad range of things there's still something that they kind of there's some Mm. niche aspect to what they do somewhere it just might not be obvious right and, yeah. and and maybe that yeah. is, uh, yeah, it, 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 you've touched on a few different things, but it could also be like a certain, I guess, like mm. a type of client that you tend to mm. kind of mm. go towards or a type of, you yeah. know, um, whatever. So, but that's yeah. that's kind of quite interesting. I, I am interested in kind of turning it around the other way and talking about clients mm. for, a, for a second and yeah, in terms sure. of you must get kind of more op- presented with more interest and opportunities from potential clients than, than you have capacity for them. So I'm, mm. I'm guessing that um, you, you spend a fair, di- uh, fair bit of time sort of selecting 
mm. ideal clients to to work with. Um, mm. How how broad is the kind of the range and psychology mm. and philosophy of the clients that you work with? Does it vary mm. quite greatly, or are you mm. are you pretty um, try to kind of found a little bit of a groove with a certain kind of type of client that mm. you're on the lookout for? Is there anything mm. anything to that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think. Um, Oh, I think I, th- I definitely think that a you do need to find a reasonable fit between the ethos of your client and of the practice. Um, and I also think that if you I say this too for people who are thinking of what practices to work in as well. It's a similar thing. There is no point. Um, choosing a client that you know is driven by things that you can't support one or another. So that's, um, and similarly, as I say to people thinking of, you know, going to different practices and things, don't go to a practice that doesn't have the values that you want to live by. Why put yourself in that? Try and align with one that does. So anyway, um, so the question of values is an important one. That's mm. not to say that you can't work productively with a client, for instance, that's very clear and explicit what their parameters are. Now, if they're clear about that, and I think that's probably the starting point, is that everyone is clear what they expect from the project or what its success might be. Um so that you can evaluate that as architects and say, yep, I'm comfortable with that. I can see a role for us to act with integrity within those parameters and therefore this could be a working partnership. And clearly when you're doing, say, multi-res, yes, the financials are going to be key drivers. So how do we intelligently work with that and produce something that still meets a contribution to a public realm, for instance. Um, So uh, clients. Um, And sometimes too I think you can be slightly surprised by a client that you thought might have. I, I think there are some clients who say all the right things in the beginning and then the tiniest uh, push and it's not what you thought was the alignment by which you might have chosen to work together, for instance. So I think the sooner you know that, the better and to help make better choices of which projects are really worth backing or not. Uh, and, And I think architects are probably notorious for a bit of wishful thinking you know, thinking, <laughs> oh, I think I can get this out of it, even though I know it's blah, blah, and blah, I think we can find a way. So because I think we are good at thinking there's a way around a problem. But there are, I remember a few years ago, someone approached us for a very large site in, um, I think somewhere in Brunswick actually, and honestly I met the project manager and I just thought, what, what, you say this is about is so far from what I think is right for that neighbourhood. Um, so it's just not going to work. And that is when you just have to say no. There's also examples where I think sometimes we 
think that a private developer will necessarily be a worse client than, say, a public sector one, and I don't think that's correct either. Uh, I think we can all think of examples where sort of an old-fashioned belief that the public sector will come through and do the right thing, but they'll be as driven by commercial margins as as another and maybe not as explicit about that as a driver. So I think um, client selection is quite a complex, nuanced um, nuanced activity. Yeah. Yep. I don't know if I've answered your question no, you have. today and about no, that. No, no, it leads me to another one. And and yeah. having done done so much kind of communication of, mm. of your ethic and, and your work and the ideas that, that go into your work and you've, you, you write and you books and talking and sort of all those different things. Um, for a client, have, do you find that for a client to come to you at this stage and mm. be completely ignorant to that, like they mm. would have to have been living under a rock kind of <laughs> like a little bit, um, yeah. do you find that by doing all those activities, like it tends to mm. attract mm. more kind of like-minded? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. And I mean, actually, that's what you want it to do because it is ultimately about self-selection. On the one hand, maybe that's a bad thing where, you know, I've given this a bit of thought to this actually in practice too. It's a bit of a challenge to diversity because if you're always trying to seek alignment of a client Mm. or whatever, the risk is that you just perpetuate um, a very undiverse way of looking at the world so that that's one downside oh. i can see in this but but running with that idea that yes i think the clients who come to us have a sense of all of that stuff even if it's more implied or something they've um, detected in our approach and and so it's definitely a um um Yes, there's already an alignment by them putting you on a shortlist, for instance, you would hope. And and I think to that end, I would say more and more I'm comfortable with losing a job if I think, well, that's okay, That's they chose X or mm. Y and that's fine. That must be what they're after and we were very clear how we might approach it and what we could bring to it and if that's not what they if that didn't appeal to them, well, that's fine. It's a good thing that they yeah, it's probably for the didn't best. Yeah. choose us. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm very comfortable with that. And, yeah, that's that's fine. I think that's quite important actually to get yeah. to that point. Yeah. Interesting. So I usually save marketing for the end <laughs> in the marketing <laughs> podcast, um, but we're not really going to talk about marketing. Um, but I'm interested in like your kind of ac- the activities of your practice in terms of um, – generating generating new business i suppose mm. so i find the your writing probably the first and foremost like most interesting part um mm-hmm. what what are some of the other things that you do to kind of get um the the in, the intent and the ideas and that mm. sort of stuff out into the world and kind of outside mm. of the the walls of the practice what are some of the things mm. that you found have been really mm. um instrumental in kind yeah. of not just being in a little bubble and working yeah. away and and you yeah. know all that sort of thing yeah, um, a couple of things. Interestingly, things like talking in more public forums about architecture I find very useful. And, look, I do that because I like to think about these things and talks are often an opportunity to think about something uh, mm. in a way you might not otherwise do in the day-to-day practice. So it's a it's a good opportunity to just expand your, your thinking. And then 
I've been surprised over the years how often someone's been at a talk course and so on, and it's led to things. So I, really? it's never been a motivation, but it's surprising to me how often it has uh, put the practice into people's minds who might otherwise not know about us. I also do think there's a lot to be said for architects, not always just talking to architects about mm. architecture. That was going to be my next question. Who are you talking to? <laughs> like, yeah, it's a really yeah. good point. Look, I remember years ago I used to talk strangely in some of the early little housing projects I was very quick off the mark. I can't believe I'm using football analogy. Um, <laughs> to to think about planning, to think about things like you know neighbourhood context and all of that stuff, and it got me very quickly into thinking about heritage and um, and how we might uh, use a building to talk to its its context and yep. the ways you might do that. And so strangely. Uh, that led me to, you know, having a reasonable run with town planning because I would try and articulate why we were why we were engaging with place, and that led me to planners asking me to speak at planning things, for instance. Mm. And I thought, well, this is good, you know, planners. We want to have a better conversation between architects and planners because it can be a real impediment otherwise, and not helping anybody if we could all just understand our motivations a bit better that would be a good thing so that that was the sort of early thing where I started to try and um, yes talk to those sorts of key disciplines which have a big impact on what gets through basically and not just in a sense to get a permit but also to help I hope expand people's thinking a little bit so that when they come to the next application, they might think, oh, remember Kirsten saying something about blah? That's interesting. Maybe, oh, that's maybe what they're doing here. And you just help people stay a bit more open to how yeah. you might respond to something. So that's where I would say every day, whether you're talking to clients or planners or consultants or, or someone on site or like or anyone, um, there is a form of advocacy for architecture that is possible and it goes back to this thing of communication, being able to explain things, um, explain in a way that whoever your audience might be can make sense of what you're talking about uh, is really, really valuable. And I think if architects can't do that, then we will just be endlessly frustrating of no one understanding us and not caring enough about architecture. So I do think that's where we sort of have a duty to be good at talking about what we do, why it's important and how it might make something better, you know, how it might improve a situation. Yeah. That would be such a good um, answer for us to end on, but I'm just going to keep asking questions. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. sure. no, <laughs> I feel like that's, that's it. it. That's the answer, guys. Advocacy, yeah. Um, yeah. speaking yeah. in a way that people understand. But I, I want yeah. you a little bit more into that and then come back to a couple of the other things. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so sure. um, this, that secret to like speak ad advocating, right? It, I, the, mm. the thing that I picked up was that you're not just kind of looking inwards on your project, mm. you're no. looking outwards. What are the other things that this Absolutely. connects to, the bigger issues um, yes. and yes. the other domains that I can mm. now like reach across to and we can have a conversation mm. about planning or about landscape mm. with landscape people and, and that sort of Definitely. thing or developers or politicians or whoever, right? Like um, yes. is that 
is that kind of the key finding that common ground is that sort of an mm. important or how would mm. you how would you kind of like mm. what what is what is that how does how does that work in a way that you can yeah. speak to non architects i suppose yeah. yeah no it's a really good question and um and i think it's one we ask ourselves a lot and get slightly baffled by <laughs> um I think, yeah, I think I think it goes towards sometimes I think, strangely this all comes back to teaching. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, the things you ask a student, a master's student, for instance, when you do supervision is substantiate your claim. Whatever mm-hmm. it is, give me some evidence. Show me a precedent. Show me an example. So that, that's one thing. You learn to, we as architects have to substantiate our claim. The building's going to do X or how explain that so that's one thing um and the other thing is i think it's and and again i think this is what i would hope our projects do they haven't just answered the problem of that project they've also done something else that someone else can draw from to help another project so i think that's where and i think that's where advocacy is it comes back to advocacy, actually, that you're not just advocating for your own self-interest or the interest of your client or of your practice, but if you do your job well, that you have somehow made a context for others to work with that makes their efforts just a bit easier because they can point to it and say, ah, that was a project that did this. We could learn from this. And that's where the exemplar comes into play, that there's something you've been able to contribute to the bigger discipline of architecture, if you like, that is um, for others to be able to draw from and utilise in their work. And I think so it, it goes beyond being useful for the project to being useful for the discipline and that's something of interest to me and um, I think, you know, over the years the practitioner's or players in architecture I've admired are people who have been able to do that so that they they have a they, they take quite carefully that responsibility to to give to the to architecture in ways that can help others and give others a leg up so whether it's as a mentor but also through the buildings and examples that you leave or the things you might challenge um, say in regu- regulations, which might then change something about that policy, which is good for everybody. So, yeah. Interesting. Why do you feel that so few architects engage in that way? Well, maybe I'm the one saying so few do. Maybe mm. maybe a lot do. But um, why aren't the majority sort of mm. doing that sort of thing? Is there is mm. there any reason in your mind for why mm. it's kind of not not so not so common? No, I sort of notorious for always seeing a counter argument because on the one hand I think, you know, I can think of so many good architects who just yeah. every day are chipping away at making someone's day-to-day better through doing a modest but intelligent project. So it's not to um, it's not to undermine that effort and that way in which yeah. um, real change happens through the ordinary everyday project. I think that um, I do think, though, that if you have, for whatever reason, built a practice that is somehow seen as leading in some way, 
then it is a really good position to speak from to advocate for change that is um, for all of us in the built environment. So I think it's something more of us should probably take yeah. up. If Even if you're not mm. yet to be leading, right? <laughs> like, no, that's right. Absolutely. You don't need yeah. to be like, you don't need to be on like the cover of like El Croquie or whatever to, uh, to contribute no. to. Yeah. No, that's right. Kirsten, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Well, that was my conversation with Kirsten Thompson from Kirsten Thompson Architects. If you'd like to learn more about Kirsten and her practice, you can visit kirstenthompson.com or follow the practice on Instagram at kirsten underscore thompson underscore architects. You can also follow her on Twitter at Thompson Kirsten, one word. KTA have also just released a fantastic monograph of their work called Encompassing People and Place. It's an absolutely beautiful book and there are some really insightful interviews and writing in there. So pick up a copy when you get the chance. And if this is your first time listening to the podcast, please make sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every other week. It also helps other architects to find the show and benefit from these conversations. So I really appreciate it when you subscribe in your podcast app. If you have any feedback or questions from this episode, you can get in touch at dave at vanityprojects.com. I love hearing from you. And if you'd like to learn more about me, you can visit vanityprojects.com to check out my blog, join over 5,000 other architects on my email list who receive my weekly emails, or learn more about my marketing coaching services for architects and book a free 15-minute call to discuss your situation and how I can help you. So that's all for this episode, and I'll see you next time.